Coast Guard received complaints some 20 years ago of sexual abuse and assault at the Coast Guard Academy years before that. The complaint spiraled from one to 60 individual reports, and 10 years ago, Coast Guard brass launched an investigation that lasted several years, but whatever it found was never made public. Until now, it was the subject of a congressional hearing, and joining me with the details, Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. And Alex, you were at that hearing, and the timeline came out. What exactly happened here? What happened is that the Coast Guard initiated an investigation into sexual assault at the Coast Guard Academy in 2014. They had one complaint, and by the time they'd finished, the investigation took five years, and they had well over 60 complaints. Some of the kind of things they found were alleged perpetrators were not criminally investigated, and if someone was found to be responsible for wrongdoing, some of the punishments for it were as minor as getting extra homework or being lowered in class rankings. And many of these people who, who were alleged to have committed these acts went on to have very successful careers in the Coast Guard. The assaults allegedly took place between 1988 and 2006. The investigation, again, wasn't started until 2014, and it wasn't finished until about 2019. Recently, CNN filed a Freedom of Information Act request to get a copy of this report, which is called Fouled Anchor. And when the Coast Guard realized it was going to be made public, they went to Congress. It was the first time that it had been been made public or that Congress knew about it. So last Thursday, the Senate Committee on Commerce, Science and Transportation held a subcommittee hearing on the Coast Guard budget, but it quickly became a hearing about the Academy's sexual assault report. Here's subcommittee chairwoman Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin. The Coast Guard not only failed to properly investigate, prosecute, and report criminal acts of assault and rape when they initially occurred at the Academy, but failed again to prosecute or discipline the perpetrators during the subsequent investigation referred to as Operation Fouled Anchor. All right, so now it's all out and Congress has got its dander up. And how is the Coast Guard responding now? Admiral Linda Fagan is the commandant of the Coast Guard, and she's only been there about 13 months. So while it wasn't on her watch, it's clear that all of this blowing up last week caught her pretty flat-footed. The pattern of failure to address sexual assaults reports at the Coast Guard Academy. Sexual assault was a crime in the 1980s, and it is still a crime. And there was a lack of policy clarity and clarity of uh, leadership with regard to how those reports needed to be handled, investigated, how the victims needed to be supported. We failed the, the cadets at the, at the Coast Guard Academy at that time period. What is the Coast Guard going to do now? Did she outlay any kind of concrete actions they can take? She did. She said they're planning a lot of changes to create levers for punishing sexual assault. A lot of those will be specifically at the academy, but also across the Coast Guard as a whole. She also mentioned that they need to hire a special prosecuting attorney like the other services have done in the last year or so. And then she's planning to spend the next couple of months developing a report on how all of this happened and how the culture allowed this to happen. Here's Admiral Fagan. I've uh, initiated a 90-day transparency and accountability review to understand what are the aspects of the culture that have allowed uh, this to occur. It started as legacy sexual assaults that were mishandled at the Coast Guard Academy, but it is clear to me 
that we've got a culture in areas that is permissive and allows sexual assaults, harassment, bullying, retaliation, that's inconsistent with our core values. It is not the workforce that, that I want or expect. And Congress, what do they plan to do, if anything, at this point? Well, as you said, they're pretty fired up about this. Last week, Congressman Jamie Raskin, ranking member of the Committee on Oversight and Accountability, and Representative Benny Thompson from the Committee on Homeland Security, sent a letter to Admiral Fagan requesting information by July 27th. Maria Cantwell, who's the co-chairman of the Commerce Committee, is saying that she's looking for a further investigation. Here's Maria Cantwell. We're going to get third party involved here to make sure that we have the oversight, the evaluation, and that Congress has transparency into the situation and, and what we need to do. This is interesting because there have been allegations of sexual harassment in the regular ranks at the Coast Guard in recent years, and the last couple of commandants have had to deal with that. This is specifically at the academy, things that happened a while ago. So it's really hard to tell what's the atmosphere at the academy at this point, at this time for the cadets that are enrolled there now. Did that come up at the hearing? It absolutely did. And you bring up a good point because Admiral Fagan was saying, we need to change the culture. And then when she was questioned on that by the senators, by Senator Cantwell specifically, she said, well, no, actually, the culture is fine now. It just wasn't before. And she said, the academy has made changes. It's much better. It's 40 percent women now. We're really in pretty good shape, but we just need to make sure that this doesn't happen in the future. Yeah, because whatever happens culturally in the academy is going to happen culturally in the Coast Guard because everyone gets out of the academy and has a career in the Coast Guard. And a career with a lot of authority in the Coast Guard. So it's it's the upper ranks that are going to set the tone for everyone else. And as far as appropriations for the Coast Guard, that didn't seem to be connected, right? I mean, whatever the Coast Guard is requesting that the Congress would normally appropriate, they didn't say they would withhold funds for anything until something's fixed at the hearing? They weren't saying they would withhold funds, but they were ex- saying that they expected answers and changes and real evidence of change very quickly. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot, Tom. And Alexandra has a story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a... um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. 
You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is 
brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time 
on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.